Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, today is a very exciting day, uh, partly because of what's already happened. It's always exciting to worship God, as well as what's going to happen after church. I think we're so excited about that. But I'm also excited about the series that we're going through as a church. If you're joining us for the first time, you have joined us in week four of our series called The Reason for Everything. This series is a bit different to what we normally do on a Sunday. On a normal Sunday, we, we look at God's Word, the Bible, we try and understand it, we try to apply it into our lives, we discuss it in our life groups. Whereas what we're doing in the course of this series is we're looking at some of the tough questions that get asked of Christianity. In fact, not only Christianity, all worldviews need to ask some of these tough questions, but we are working out how do we look at some of the evidence out there and have good answers to some of these tough questions. We had a wonderful time here on Friday night where we watched the movie together, The Case for Christ, which was a true story about Lee Strobel, who's still alive, and you can get his book, The Case for Christ. Uh, he was a Chicago Tribune reporter, in fact, an award-winning reporter, and, and he was like a bulldog with the facts and the truth. You go where the truth goes. And his wife became a believer, and he couldn't stand it, and he thought it would take him a few days to disprove Christianity with the facts. And the opposite happened. Two years later, he bent the knee and became a Christian. But over the course of those two years, he was asking the people around him, including people in his workplace, as well as some of the big intellectuals out there, just help him think through some of these obstacles to coming to, to faith in Christ. And one of the comments said to me on Friday night was this, you know, the most challenging thing about this movie is this, what if he asked me those questions? Would I have been prepared to either give him an answer to those questions or at least point him in the right direction? And that is our challenge. That is why we're doing this series. Because let me tell you, while Lee Strobel may not come in asking you for answers to their questions, your children will. Your neighbors will. Your colleagues have big questions. And if they know you're Christians, I'm hoping that at one time they will come to you and ask them about these obstacles to faith in Christ. And today's question is probably the biggest obstacle, both for Christians. Christians find today's question very difficult to live with. But those who are not Christians find it an even bigger obstacle to faith and belief in a good, loving, powerful, personal God. And that is the question. Why is the world so messed up? Why is the world so messed up? I don't have to point you towards the news headlines. I don't have to talk to you and try and help you understand that there's pain and suffering and evil in this world. And for that reason, many find this question an obstacle to faith in a personal and loving God. Now, on one hand, it's a philosophical question, meaning it's something we can think about with our minds and we can think about, is it compatible that there is pain and evil and suffering in this world and there's a loving, powerful, personal God? So it's a philosophical question, but I think more importantly for most of us here this morning, it's an emotional question. Because we're not thinking like, you know, philosophically, well, why is there evil out there? We're thinking, how could a good, loving, powerful, personal God allow blank to happen? How could he allow me to get cancer? How could you allow that person to run the red robots? 
How could you allow my child to die? Or how could you allow that tsunami to happen and kill 100,000 people? So it's an emotional question. And because most of us here have at some level either seen or been part of some incredible pain and suffering, somehow we find belief in God very difficult. Now, I want you to imagine going with a video camera and a, and a microphone kind of interview style, going to the Glen, going to Mall of the South, going to Vitz, going to UJ, going to Sanson, and asking a whole bunch of people. These people could be Christians or they could be part of another religion or no religion. But you ask them one question and you say, what is wrong with this world? When you start collating those answers, whether you ask 50 people or 500 people, you'll find that the answers to those questions fall under two big categories. The first category will be this. Some people might say, well, what's wrong with the world? And some people might point towards the tsunami that killed 100,000 people. People might point towards other natural disasters that have resulted in the deaths of many. They might point towards death and disease and cancer. These have nothing to do with people's bad decisions. They're what we would call natural evil. So there's something wrong with the world. The other set of answers you're going to get is there's something wrong with us. So they might point towards violence, crime. They might point towards corruption in the governments, both in ours and across the, across the waters. They might point towards pedophiles and sex traffickers. And they say, that's what's wrong with the world. So when we ask the world out there, what's wrong with us? You'll say, well, there's something wrong with the world, natural evil, and there's something wrong with us. The fact that human beings can really inflict great pain and suffering on one another. What you're not going to get, though, is what is wrong with the world? Nothing. No one's going to say there's nothing wrong with the world. Everything that happens, good and bad, well, that's all cool with me. You're always going to get an answer. So on one level, we're very happy as human beings to acknowledge there's something wrong with this world. There's also something wrong with us. And because when you combine all the natural disasters and the death as a result of that, as well as the fact of how we as human beings have been able to inflict great pain and suffering on one another, add that together, we've got an enormous amount of pain and an enormous amount of suffering. And it leads many to conclude, therefore, there cannot be a good, loving, powerful, personal, God. So we're going to deep dive on this. And I want to start off by looking at the words that are in common between the two statements. And that is, those are the words, there is something wrong, dot, dot, dot. You see, before we are even able to say there's something wrong with cancer, there's something wrong with violent crime, there's something wrong with corruption, we need to be able to say there's something wrong with anything. You see, the minute we say there's something wrong with anything, we are implying what C.S. Lewis calls a sense of ought. In other words, here's all where things are, but things ought to be like this. So there's something wrong with cancer. Things ought to be different. And by implying this ought, and therefore there's something wrong with certain things, there's something right with other things, we are invoking what we call a moral law. That there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as morality. With no morality, we can't call anything evil. So if we want to call anything evil, we have to have a moral law. So the question is, 
where does this moral law come from? Where does the sense of ought come from? Now, on one hand, this actually seems to be very much a part of us. So confession time. I am least Christian in the traffic. Right? And some of you have, uh, you've got the long commute in the morning and the long commute back at peak hour uh, traffic time. And you know what it's like to be on the highway at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning or coming back at 5 in the afternoon. And because you're good Christians, you're like, well, I know that. You know, I'm not talking about when there's an accident or there's some other tragedy. I'm just talking about the normal heavy traffic. So, uh, you know, being good Christians, you put on praise and worship and you pray and, and God, I'm going to ask for patience and I'm going to get home and I'm not going to bark at my wife and I'm not going to bark at the kids and I'm not going to bark at the dog, uh, which is interesting. Um, but, <laughs> and I'm going to settle in and I'm just going to you know, suffer long in the car. Until you look in the side mirror and you see a little, it's usually a bantam bucky pop out of the left-hand lane into the emergency lane. And suddenly you see all the faces in the car behind you change. Right? And everyone gets upset. And yet this guy is happy as a lark, usually. (laughs) And they're so happy to go past you. And what is the first thing we say inside of us? That's not fair. We're good citizens and we know what the emergency lane is for and this doesn't qualify as emergency and we've got to wait. How is it that you get to do that? Not only, not only do you and I have some sense of ought, some sense of right and wrong that comes quite naturally to us, but this is in fact something we can see in us from the day we're born. Again, I've got two young boys and no one had to teach them this. From a very young age. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Nate is not sharing his car with me. It's not fair. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Levi ate all the sweets he didn't share. That's not fair. Now they didn't arrive at those conclusions because from two months old, I was indoctrinating them with you know, balance sheets and pie charts and trying to teach them a sense of morality or fairness. This idea just seems to be in them, almost like it's hardwired in them. Now, where does this come from? This is not just a Christian question. This idea of there's something wrong needs to be answered by all worldviews. I've mentioned to you that I, the biggest competing worldview out there for most of us, the one we encounter most of the time in our families and our workplaces and schools, varsities out there, is one that tries to explain that the reason for everything is just blind naturalistic evolutionary forces. So we look at the natural world, we see how it got there, and that explains everything. So when it comes to, well, where does the sense of ought, the sense of morality come from? Some would say, well, if we look in the natural world, we actually see something that you and I might call moral behavior. So for example, we might see elephants mourning their dead. Or we might see a courageous springbuck fighting off a lion so that the lion doesn't devour her young. You might say, well, because we see that in the natural world, things like empathy or things like courage, when we see that in human beings, we shouldn't be surprised that we see something that you and I call moral behavior. And yet we also see a number of other interesting things in the natural world. So ground squirrels frequently eat their own young. Mallards gang rape and drown other ducks. 
cichlids, type of little fish, eat the eyes of other cichlids. And spotted hyenas on our own continent, when two are born together, the one will not only dominate the other, but actually kill the other one. And I suspect that if you and I started routinely eating our young and eating each other's eyeballs, I suspect the world would have a problem with that. Even if we said, but ground squirrels do it, right? So does it always translate? I don't know if it always translates. One of the other ways people try and explain without the existence of God, that there's a sense of ought, a sense of morality, so we can say anything is right or wrong, is that over hundreds and thousands of years, our brains developed ideas about what was best for society and the preservation of us as a people. Kind of like, you know, baboons live together in small groups, so we used to live together in small groups, and we kind of developed these ideas until they're hardwired into us. So we're just inheriting this hardwired sense of what is right and wrong for the preservation of our species. And yet, when we look at human behavior, we do some very strange things that goes against that premise. For example, you might get a guy who beats his own children who carry his genes and yet donates money to a charity on the other side of the world that gives to people who do not carry his own genes. You might get a guy who has a vasectomy and is unable to have any progeny and yet he still wants to have sex with everything that moves. Sometimes we have people who have incredible amounts of resources and yet they still want more. Why? You don't see that in nature. Or why will some people jump in a turbulent ocean and risk their lives for people that they may never see again? C.S. Lewis, as he was thinking through this, C.S. Lewis, similar to Lee Strobel, was an atheist and thought he had good reasons why he was an atheist, started investigating, digging deeper, came to the conclusion that there was a God. One of the turning points for him was this issue. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I call it unjust. If we want to call anything wrong, if we want to say cancer is wrong, if we want to say crime is wrong, and if we want to say tsunamis that kill 100,000 people is wrong, we need to be able to say that anything is right or wrong. And I don't know if a world that excludes God and tries to explain this purely from naturalistic forces, I believe that they fail in answering this. So let's talk about, we said, let's talk about those words, there's something wrong. Let's talk about the first of the two statements we had up there earlier, where we said, there's something wrong with the world. Most people on this planet would agree there's something wrong with this world. This is what we call natural evil. Now here's the thing. You and I don't actually have a problem with earthquakes and tsunamis and viruses unless they bring about human suffering and death. So we don't care if right now there's a huge hurricane into Antarctica that doesn't result in anyone dying. We don't care about the fact whether some virus, I mean, I don't know if this happens, but if there's some virus floating around the Pacific Ocean, we don't care that it exists until it reaches someone and kills them. So our real problem is not that we've got tectonic plates and volcanoes. Our real problem is death. That is our issue. That is what we struggle with. 
And my question is why? Why is death such a problem for us? Especially if we only got here through blind evolutionary natural forces. Charles Darwin, the grandfather of evolution, he observed nature is red in tooth and claw. In other words, nature works through the principle of violence and death. That is what it means for the strong to outwards and outplay the weak. That is how he gets here. So if violence is the key mechanism in the natural world, why is it that we have such a problem with violence and death? Why is it that when your grandfather dies at 97 years old peacefully in his sleep, or whether someone in your family dies a violent death, or whether someone died a few days into their short little life, why is it we've got such a problem with death? Why is it we feel like we've been robbed? Why is it that we feel like death is wrong? Why do we mourn? Why do we feel like this is not right? And maybe the answer is, maybe there is a problem with death. Maybe it is wrong. So there is something wrong with the world and death is not right. Let's talk quickly about the second of those two statements. There's something wrong with us. Last week, if you weren't here, we spoke about the fact that most of us live as if there's something special about humanity. We call it human dignity, human value, human worth. We try and alleviate human suffering. So how, how can we affirm that? And the fact that, so someone came up to me after the service last week and said, okay, Stephen, that's wonderful, but what do we do about the fact that not everyone treats human beings like that? That we do have sex traffickers. We do have slave traders. We do have people who go around doing violent crime all the time. Because that's the other thing we see in humanity. I think it was a theologian, Irenaeus, he said, when it comes to human beings, we can talk about the glory and the wretchedness of man. The fact that on one hand, we are wonderful creatures. We are capable of such wonderful things. We can build these incredible architectural things and, and we can talk about beauty and art and music, love and sacrifice. And at the same time, we are so capable of hurting one another deeply. So do we have a worldview that can account for the fact that we can celebrate this side as well as recognize the presence of the other side? There's also this thing that while humans have known this about ourselves for thousands of years, we haven't been able to do anything about it. There's no amount of breeding that somehow breeds this out of us. So here's a bit of a thought experiment because some of you might say, okay, fine, okay, there are Hitlers in this world, but they are a rare breed, right? There are genocidal maniacs and there are people who do violence, but that's not me, that's not us, that's not the type of people sitting here this morning. Okay, well, thought experiment. What say we get rid of, kind of when it comes on a scale of violence or, or evilness, on a scale of one to 10, uh, let's get rid of all the 10 out of 10 evil people, real evil people. You know, sex traffickers, uh, uh, genocidal maniacs, let's just get rid of them. Okay, so the question is, have we eliminated all pain and suffering? No, we haven't. Okay, so let's get rid of the next level, uh, nine out of 10 evil people. So let's get rid of corrupt government officials. Let's get rid of people who are always drunk because they might drive through a red robot. Uh, let's get rid of like anyone, and you can use your own classification, uh, nine out of 10 evil people. Let's get rid of them. All right, now, has all evil, pain, and suffering been eliminated? No. 
And you could go down and down and down until eventually you're the next evil person to get rid of. See, you have caused other people in your life pain and suffering. You have lied to yourself more than anyone else has lied to you. You have let people down, regardless of your standards, whether it's some sort of religiously informed standard or your own set of rules, you continually fail them. You fail to live up to your own goals on a continual basis. And as much as you want to be perfect parents and you want to be a perfect dad and a perfect business owner, you fail, right? You make the wrong decisions. You make the wrong investments. We mess up our relationships, even with the best intentions. Where does it come from? This sense that on one hand, we we think humans are amazing and yet we are capable of such damage. And, And again, this actually seems to be something that is true of us from the day we were born. Right, and again, we were like, no, you're talking about cute little babies? Yes, cute little babies, have you ever had one? Right? It's not easy. Because here's the thing. No one has to teach them that if you're hungry, bite mom's arm. If you're upset with your brother, pull his hair. And if you're just generally upset, throw toys across the whole room. That they get right all on their own. And yet try to teach them patience. Try to teach them responsibility. And it feels like that's a losing battle. Why does it seem like that comes so naturally and all the good virtues, we need to train in them? And by the way, that continues into you, you, you and me. Why is it that things that we would call wrong, on average, come easier than things we would call right? Why is it often that lying seems like the easy way out? And telling the truth and taking the rap feels like the hard way out. Why does it feel like... Let me just not disclose this on my tax, you know. And disclosing it and being bumped up to another tax bracket or whatever, why does that feel like the harder thing to do? Why does it feel like that the the easier thing to do is to click on the website and just have a quick look than to actually walk away from the computer? There's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with every single one of us. And I don't know, again, if the natural will can explain that very well. So, so far, I think we can agree on the following points. There is something wrong. In other words, there's a moral law. We ought to call some things wrong and some things right. Number two, there is something wrong with the world. And number three, there is something wrong with us. I mean, yeah, something we say all the time. Well, nobody's perfect, right? It's because we know there's something wrong with us. And I believe that the Christian worldview is the only worldview which best explains those three statements. So let's look at them very briefly. Number one, there is something wrong, a moral law, right and wrong. Genesis 2 verses 16 to 17, right from the beginning. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In other words, God is the one who came up with what is right What is wrong? It originated with him. You see, when we've got a problem with Adolf Hitler, for that matter, uh, for example, 
It's not a problem of personal taste. Well, I happen to like chocolate. Well, Adolf, you happen to like vanilla. I happen to like looking after Jewish people. You happen to like killing them. No, we appeal to what we call a transcendent morality. We're saying, doesn't matter what you think, Adolf, you are wrong. It's greater than you. It's greater than me. It's greater than your culture. It's greater than my culture. You are objectively wrong. We're appealing to something that is greater than individuals, greater than culture, what we call a transcendent morality. And the Bible shows this comes from God. Look at Romans 2 verses 14 to 15. Indeed, when Gentiles, these are those in the, Old, in the New Testament who do not yet know God, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, referring to the written law of the Old Testament. And yet, next verse, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences, also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This idea that this sense of ought, this moral law, is actually imprinted on our hearts and our consciences. While we can debate about the, the fine points of it, we all have a sense of right and we all have a sense of wrong. So that's how the Christian worldview, we talk about the fact that there's a moral law. There is something wrong. Let's talk about the fact that there's something wrong with the world. And the Bible would say a big, loud, yes, there is something wrong with the world. Cancer is wrong. Death is wrong. When tsunamis take out 100,000 people, that is wrong. Romans 8.22 says, and I see, I don't have, I need my Bible left, sorry. Is it up there on the screen? There we go. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We see pain in the natural order. So the Bible says, yes, there is something wrong with the world. And finally, let's talk about this fact that there is something wrong with us. Let's go to the next verse. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, when him and, and Eve decided to sin, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. This is really just a summation of this idea that we all have this thing that is broken and fractured within us. That leads every single one of us to not always live up to our glory, but sometimes to our wretchedness. So the Bible would say there is something wrong. There is something wrong with the world and there is something wrong with us. And when we boil this right down, while our friends and our colleagues and our families might use different language, and we say, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with the world? The, the terms the Bible uses, well, what's wrong with the world? It's death. And what's wrong with us? The word the Bible uses is sin. So we've tried to show that the world is actually quite happy with the fact that there is death and it's wrong and there is sin and it is wrong. So you might say, okay, Stephen, that very well explains why, not why, but the fact that there are these things. Maybe you're still left with the question, why? Why did God set it up this way? I mean, if I was God, I would have set it up differently, right? I would have set up the world in such a way that there would be far less suffering and difficulty in this world. Now, I need to be very careful when you say, well, why is the world the way that it is? And why did God set it up that way? Because the Bible doesn't have, you know, Genesis 72 verse five, here's why God did it. There are a few clues, and I just want to look at one clue this morning. 
Ravi Zacharias, who's a guy who goes around the world speaking to these issues in often very hostile uh, circumstances, and he often takes questions. He was asked exactly this question. Why did God set it up in such a way that there is so much love on one hand and pain and suffering on the other? And he says, okay, there are four possibilities when it comes to the way God could have created things. Number one, God could have not created. And then we wouldn't even have the question. Number two, God could have created an amoral world. A world where there's no sense of right, no sense of wrong. No, yes, this is good and that's bad. Just no sense internally that anything's good or anything's bad. It's an amoral world. Number three, he could have created a world where we can only choose right. Number four, he could have created this world. And Ravi Zacharias says, here's the thing. Option four, this world is the only world where love is a possibility. Think about it. If God did not create, there would be no such thing as love. If we live in an amoral world, well, you try and love me or you try and kill me, I can't say one is better than the other. If there is a world where I can only choose right, that means I have no free will. That means we're like robots and we're programmed to only do good. That means a whole lot of good is done, but no love. This is the world where love is possible because you and I get to freely choose what we're going to do. And if I get given the option to do evil, I also get the option to love. And I get to choose to freely reject Jesus or love him. This world is the only world which allows love. Now, we're going to start wrapping this up pretty soon. Spoken about the fact that we're so aware that there is something wrong with this world. We don't like cancer and death and pain. We also know there's something wrong with us. Now, again, when we say, well, there's something wrong with these things, don't you think that's maybe a clue that there's something hardwired into us that we long for a world where those things are no longer a reality? So you've got two options. Well, either this is our reality and we live and suffer and die and there's no such thing as justice or anything, or maybe God has set things up in such a way that one day we will live in a world where there is no pain, where there is no suffering, and where there is no death. And the Christian worldview would affirm that very loudly. Yes, your instincts are right. God has set it up in, in a way that one day there will be no pain and suffering and death. Revelation 21 verses 4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is talking about our eternal future, the new heavens, the new earth, the details I can't get into now. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Yes, that time is coming. That's why we, as a church, we looked at the book of 1 Peter earlier this year. Kept on talking about our eternal hope. This is our eternal hope. Uh, we looked at Romans 8 earlier and it used the metaphor of birth pains. And some of you have experienced birth pains. And the whole idea is once you've experienced that deep and profound pain and the second that baby is born, what happens? All memory of that pain goes away. 
Yes, you know, at some level, it's still there. Doesn't make the actual pain of childbirth any easier. But man, you look at this little baby girl, you look at this little baby boy, and you, and you need to now care for him or her and look after them. You have forgotten what you've just experienced. And some of you really forget it because you have a second and a third. <laughs> and the Bible's saying in the same way, yes, we experience profound pain and suffering, but this new world will come and that'll be like a distance memory. It doesn't make what you and I experience now any easier. It does mean that we have a hope. But I want to take this one step further. Many of you have asked this question, maybe out loud or just in your own hearts. Maybe people have asked this of you. Where was God when it hurt? Where was God when my child died? Where was God when I got cancer? When was God when three people in my family were killed in a car accident? Where was God when it hurts? And here's what the way the Christian worldview would answer this. God is in exactly the same place he has always been when it comes to pain and suffering. And that is hanging on a cross for our pain and our sin and death. In other words, when we think about God in our pain and suffering, he's not up there like, the, you know, like Thor and those gods up there. They're kind of doing their thing and, and conquering godly worlds and making love and war. And we're just these little pawns. No, God is a God that when we suffer, he says, I suffered too. I've been there. I've done that. I've got the t-shirts. That God entered the deepest form of human physical pain, emotional, spiritual, psychological pain. And more so, not just the events itself, but the fact that the pain and the sin and the consequences of every human being was placed on him. So we pray to a God who when we're suffering, he comes alongside us and says, I too know suffering. Well, maybe you want me to just magically make it go away. I'm gonna walk with you in this pain and suffering. There's no other worldview that gives you that. And then we've got these instincts. Surely the time will come when all of this is taken away. And he says, you're right. But God, how do we know for certain that we can expect this future? And he says, well, if the greatest malady that humanity faces is sin and death, look at the cross. Because that is where my son defeated sin and death. And we live in this in-between world between the time of the cross and the time of its fulfillment. Again, but how do I know? How do I know? Well, look at the cross. Oh yes, Jesus did defeat sin and death. That means one day this world will happen. At the point of deepest suffering, God was doing his greatest work. And at this point, we as a church, we're gonna take communion together. Something we do once a month. It's, it's for us as believers. If, if you do not yet believe this stuff, maybe just think about this. Maybe, God, if you're there, just speak to me at this time. But we take bread, we break it just like Jesus did as a picture of his body being broken for sin and death. We have a little cup of grape juice symbolizing his blood, which was shed for sin, for death. But we don't mourn when we take this. We celebrate because we know that he rose, defeating sin and death, promising us a world where there will no longer be sin and death. And as we come again to the cross, 
we are reminded that as Christians, we live out this hope. And we demonstrate in word and in deed that there is something to look forward to. There is going to come a time when there's no more sin and death. So let us pray. And then there's tables in the front, there's tables on the side, there's one at the back and there's one up there. In your own time, there'll be some music playing gently. Take off the bread. Pray to God. Take the wine. Pray to God. Or the grape juice, sorry. Didn't mean to get you excited there. And let's acknowledge that at the center of this question about sin, evil, death, and suffering is a God who took it upon himself so that he could guarantee life for us in eternal life. Father, you are not a God who is distant to our pain and suffering. And there are some here this morning for whom this is not a philosophical question. This is a lived question. And yes, God, I pray that we might think about things differently and at the same time also to recognize that you make your love available to us. You give yourself to us to walk with us through pain and suffering. You also give us the opportunity to live in such a way that causes the world around us to hope that maybe pain and suffering will cease. So God, I ask that you administer to us in our minds that we would think differently, switches would be going on. I pray that we would feel differently, knowing that we have hope in you and that you are with us. And that you are the true empathizer as we go through what we're going through. And I also pray for such a vibrant hope, knowing what you give us in Jesus. You give us yourself and you guarantee this future hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In your own time, please enjoy this time with God.